Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Good to see you guys. Oh, man, what an awesome uh, time of worship. Thank you, Shep. It's awesome. Um, man, we are barreling our way through the book of James. And so, man, let's just open it up. If you grab a blue Bible uh, in front of you, it's on page um, 1,200. You can pull that up. And I'm just gonna open up uh, by reading our text this morning. James says in chapter two, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you wanna be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Can anybody say gulp? (laughs) Now this is an intense uh, passage of scripture and there's a lot of fierceness in James' uh, tone uh, in this passage. Um, It's one of the fiercest passages in the whole book of James. Uh, And some say it's one of the most difficult passages to kind of figure out what's going on here in the text. Um, I don't know if you know this, but good relationships all live in tension. Did you know that? Um, For about a decade, I was a college professor uh, spending my time at Missouri State University and University of Central Arkansas. And I taught um, public speaking and communication courses. And one of the theories that we always talked about when we got into interpersonal communication was the theory of relational dialectics or relational uh, dynamics or tensions is really what it means. And what the theory says is that every good relationship lives in three tensions. Now, I didn't understand this for most of my life, which is probably why I didn't get married till I was 38. (laughs) Um, But the three tensions go something like this. And most of you are like, man, I knew these already. Um, One of them is the tension between novelty and predictability. You know, I'm a person who loves rhythm. So I just like lean into rhythms, man. If I can work out, you know, regularly, um, you know, four times in a week, then I can knock that out, you know, for a long time. If I eat steak on Monday, I'm gonna want it on Wednesday and Friday and Saturday. Um, I'm just a person of rhythm, my wife can tell you. Uh, She's more a person of novelty. And if I just settle into a rhythm, I frustrate her. 
If there's not some opportunity to, to do something fun, to kind of hang out, to have, be spontaneous or whatever. And I know I seem like a fun guy, but I'm not that spontaneous. <laughs> I'm actually not very spontaneous uh, at all. And uh, even just the other day, she was like, can we just, you know, surprise me as my birthday is coming up. And I was like, what do you want for your birthday? And she was like, I don't know. And then she was like, well, maybe this. And I got it. And I put the package on the table in the dining room. You know, here's your birthday gift a week ago. She's like, that's not how this works. You, you take that gift, you know, and you're gonna write a card and, you know, come on, surprise me. I don't know how to do that. And if a relationship doesn't live in that tension, it struggles between the tension of novelty and predictability. Um, it also lives in the tension of openness and closeness, right? Uh, we all know that every relationship has to have this vulnerability and this openness, but we also know that at the right time, if there is not some holding back, we can blow up the relationship, right? This was my problem when I would try to date. I'd be like, hey, you wanna know me, right? And I would just like, here you go, here it is. And the girls would be like, oh no, like, we don't, we don't. it's too much, it's too much, right? Uh, there's got to be a tension between openness and closeness in a healthy relationship. There's a tension between autonomy and connectedness, right? There's a sense in which we have to be connected. If we're just two independent individuals just going along, we're not going to have a good relationship. Uh, but there's got to be uh, also some autonomy, right? If we're just like, I can't go anywhere unless you're attached to my hip, it's not healthy. And people start suffering. That's my problem. I'm always like, where are you going, honey? I want to go with you, you know? And she's like, I need to go be with my friends. Leave me alone for a second, you know? There, there's these tensions that every healthy relationship lives in. And I just want you to know, maybe you're new to Christianity um, or maybe you've walked with Jesus for a long time. If you have walked with Jesus for a while, you know that our relationship with Jesus lives in tension. In fact, there's some massive tensions that you're gonna become aware of. If, maybe if you're brand new to Jesus and new to Christianity that you're starting to be aware of now. In fact, one of the biggest questions I ever get asked um, from new believers is, hey, Chuck, I'm, I'm reading my Bible and it says God predestines and he's sovereign over everything, but then also says I have free will and I gotta do stuff. What do I do with that? And I go, good luck. <laughs> you know, it's tension. God is big and he's sovereign and he decrees everything and he also commands you to do things and he holds you accountable and, and you gotta walk it out. That's just your relationship with Jesus. It's a massive tension. There's a massive tension between the grace of Jesus and, and the mercy of Jesus and also the holiness of God and the justice of God. That's a really difficult tension to hang on to. And so we, we find ourselves, you know, talking about, you know, God's holy and, he, and he's just and, and then we beat people up with his holiness and his justice. And then maybe we go, oh man, I don't like that. So we, God's grace, his grace, it's this awesome, awesome grace. And there, there's just these tensions that we live in. And the tension of this text, um, some theologians say is one of the, the strongest tensions in the Bible. And it's the tension between salvation by faith alone or salvation by faith plus works of obedience. And, and I, I just wanna just tell you, probably not, we're not going to answer it all or solve it all this morning. This is a walk with Jesus kind of thing. And so if you're new, welcome, it's a tension. If you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you know this tension. And as you grow in Jesus, you begin to grapple more and more with what all this feels like and looks like. The salvation by faith alone, uh, just so you know, was key to the Reformation. 
And when Martin Luther and, and Calvin, when those guys were showing up on the scene, what was happening was is that the church at the time, the only church at the time, the Catholic church, was really had bundled up salvation with a bunch of things. They bundled it up with, you know, having to say the right kinds of prayers and, and having to pay for penance and confession. And, and there'd been a whole bunch of things that had been wrapped up into you're saved, but then you also have to do uh, these things to be saved. And, and Martin Luther was grappling with that. And honestly, the reason he was grappling with it was because he really tried hard. Is that anybody's story in the room this morning? Like you've leaned in, you've really tried hard. And what he found was the harder he tried, the less sure he felt about his salvation. He tried hard, he tried to obey, he tried to do it all. And every effort he put into it, the less sure he felt that he was saved. And so the, the whole reformation with the spark of him reading Romans and seeing that Paul said in Romans, man, salvation is by faith alone. And he felt this rest that God had chosen him and accepted him and bought him and he belonged. And he was able to sleep for the first time. And yet that bumps into this text that James is gonna talk about. You know, one of the underlying questions of this tension is the question, does the Bible have contradictions? And, 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 and so if you talk to someone who says, man, I'm done with Jesus, I'm done with the church, I'm done with Christianity, I don't read the Bible. One of the main things they'll say is the Bible has contradictions. And it can be really easy to get defensive as Christians. It can be like, well, no, it doesn't. It's not there. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but honestly, if we look, when we, as we look at this text, we're gonna see it's not such an easy answer actually. In fact, the core of the tension of this text, you'll see is in verse 24, where James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And you see the tension even clearer when you line that up on top of Romans 3.28, where James says, you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In Romans 3.28, Paul says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. When you line it up, it gets a little sticky, doesn't it? Anybody going, uh-oh. I thought, I thought we had an easy answer for this. There's no easy answer. It actually requires us to think, and I think actually this bumps into another big problem in Christianity and evangelicalism, is we love to take these incredible, mysterious truths of God, and we love to try to get them down on the bottom shelf. And when we do that, sometimes we lose this intensity and this tension and this mystery about a relationship with a God that's over everything. And I actually just, I just wanna challenge us this morning. We might have to get up on our tippy toes a little bit and, and, and get up and say, hey, this is a little bit top shelf stuff. How does saving faith and the mystery of that operate in this obedience that James is gonna call us to? There are two ditches I think we can fall into this morning. There's the ditch of easy believism and sloppy grace. We've, some of us have fallen into that. I've definitely done that where I just wanna say, hey, listen, it's not hard at all. This relationship with Jesus, no big deal. All you gotta do is say an easy prayer. The, the grace of Jesus comes in, that's it, you're saved. And, and sometimes we've, done, we've worked so hard to make the bar so low that we've told people things that maybe the Bible doesn't actually say. 
I don't know if anyone's ever, I, I know, by the way, I love the, the sinner's prayer, by the way. It's a great prayer. You know, confess your sins and, and put your faith in the cross of Jesus. And it's a beautiful prayer. But you know, there's no such sinner's prayer in the Bible. And there's no such confidence that saying some incantation just flipped you to the other side. And all of a sudden you were magically saved. Salvation is actually a much more mysterious thing going on inside of us. And so we can fall into the ditch of easy believism and sloppy grace that leads us to maybe a false sense of security. I'm a Christian and you're not. I know that even saying that is like, ugh, ugh. You know, have you ever told somebody you're like, they're like, you can tell they don't follow Jesus. And you're like, hey man, like, what do you think about following Jesus? And they're like, what are you talking about, man? I'm a Christian. Uh, you know, that's hard, sticky. I remember I was talking to one guy back in college. This happens a lot in the Bible Belt, by the way. And, and I said, hey, man, um, what do you think about Jesus, man? What do you think about like, and he goes, man, get off my case. I'm a Christian. I said, okay, okay. Hey, do you love, what about like, do you love Jesus? And he goes, man, what does that have to do with it? <laughs> and I was like, uh, that's like all of it. Right? But, but some people can be like, hey man, I said a prayer, I did the thing. And they can have a false sense of security and that can lead us to apathetic lifestyles. The second ditch is a performance-driven faith. And this is where Martin Luther was feeling the tension. Perform, perform, perform. I, I need to build up a spiritual resume and I need to hold that resume up and say, Jesus, look at the resume. Surely, please God, I, I'm one of yours. Like I belong, I'm going to heaven. Do you see the resume? And, and that, man, that produces all kinds of feelings of failure because we try really hard, but, but we know our heart and we know we haven't measured up. Judgmentalism. I tried really hard. So what do I do when I look to my left and my right and I see people not trying as hard? I'm like, oh, look at you. What's wrong with you? Get with it. And we become judgmental. And then we become self-righteous, right? Hey, my, my goodness measures up. And by the way, when you read Paul carefully, this is the kind of thing he was deconstructing. Philippians chapter three, that's all Philippians chapter three is about is Paul said, hey, here was my spiritual resume. I was a Jew of the Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee, I obeyed the law. According to the law, I was blameless. And then he says, this spiritual resume is trash compared to knowing Christ. But I want you to notice that when, if you can go read that Philippians chapter three, he didn't say the resume is trash compared to doing nothing. He said the resume is trash compared to intimacy with Jesus. And I think that's an important distinction that we're gonna have to get at as we get into this. So how do we understand what's going on in this text? About to read a few verses here in a second, but before we do, just a little bit of a background. I know there's a long runway into the text, but there's a lot of tension in the text. So I think it's helpful to do this. But the, the, the context of the text in this whole book is the theme of faith. If you remember back to chapter one, uh, Paul, uh, James talks about the testing of faith. That's his whole hope is that your faith, you're gonna go through trials. And what happens in trials is in the trial, your faith is gonna come out and it's gonna be stronger and tested and complete, he says. In chapter two, he says, you can't show partiality. You can't say, I, I prefer the rich over the poor and hold faith. You can't do that. 
You can't say I've got some people I love and some people I don't have to love and hold on to faith. That was chapter two, verse one. Two, five, last week, Tim pointed out that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. And by the way, if you know your Bible very well, that sounds suspiciously like faith is a gift, doesn't it? Could be that James also believes faith is a gift from God. God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. And of course, if you speed to the end of the book in chapter five, James wants us to pray in faith. So, so there's this idea of faith that James has about what is, what is faith producing? And, and the question in the text today is he's gonna be like, if it's not producing anything, you might need to evaluate what's going on with your faith or maybe even whether you have faith. And this passage is really the center of his argument about what faith is. Look at this in verse 14. But what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Um, If you remember in chapter two, the opening of chapter two is the assembly and that's probably staying true into this passage. So when Tim talked about how they were gathering in the church and they, were, they had seats and they were starting to probably prefer the rich in that seat, that's still in mind in this phrase, go in peace, be warmed and filled. This is what the pastor would say at the end of the service. This is the benediction. We've all worshiped, we've heard the word of God. And then the pastor would get up and he would say, go in peace. And James says, in line with what he said earlier in chapter two, if you say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and someone sitting in front of you doesn't have the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, those of us who get up and say those things in front of gatherings of people are probably the ones who need to hear that the strongest. Go in the peace of the Lord, but you don't have what you need. James is concerned that some may not have saving faith. You see that right there in verse 17. He says in verse 17, so faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. He's not saying that there's a faith, a genuine faith that doesn't produce works. The word dead means it's dead. He didn't, notice he didn't say, now there's a weak faith and there's, or there's a growing faith or the, he said a faith that doesn't have works is a dead faith. It's no faith at all actually is what he's saying. But we gotta be careful here because he's not promoting a performance driven relationship with God. Well, how do we know he's not promoting a, a performance driven relationship with God? Well, just look back up at verse 10 for a second, chapter two, verse 10. He talks about whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Now, when he says that, who's he, who's he saying, who's he expecting to go, oh yeah, that's right, that's true for me. All of us, that everybody under the sound of my voice has not kept the whole law. And so he says, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit 
adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has showed no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now that ought to safeguard us from launching into this faith without works is dead by going that somehow James wants a performance-driven Christianity. Because what we see in those verses is that James wants a humble heart, a humble heart that says, man, I received mercy. This is not a, clab, a clobber passage, therefore. You don't get to turn around and say, hey, I'm gonna go around and go, do I see enough works in you? Do I see enough works in you? Hey, Cheryl, I didn't see enough works in you. You know, this is not a clobber. I get to hit you with what I don't see in you. This is, this is James saying, hey, you need to look at your own heart. So don't shift from show mercy to, oh, I'm gonna go on a witch hunt to find out whose faith is real. He's not promoting a performance-driven relationship with God. What probably is happening is that there are people in the congregation that were saying things like, we believe and don't bother us with like needing to do any acts of charity. Or maybe in our context, it might be something like, yeah, I believe, but, but don't, don't call me into serving my neighbor. Yeah, 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 I, I believe, but, but don't, don't ask me if I should serve the kids in our church. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I believe, but, but don't, you know, come on now, I got stuff I'm doing, I pay you to do the ministry and I'm gonna sit here and listen to sermons. James might have something to say about that. He seems to want to correct a, a faulty definition of faith. A faith that says, as you saw in verse 14, that doesn't have works and sees people in need and says, not my responsibility. If you can see someone in need and say, not my responsibility, you need to understand that that, that is a thread line down to what you believe about Jesus and who you are in relationship to Jesus. And James wants you to connect the dots. There's a, there's a warning here that echoes Jesus. You know, we talked about when we did the introduction that James and Jesus were really close and that Matthew reflects a lot of his language. If you look at one of the strongest warnings of Jesus in the book of Matthew, you'll, you can see what James is talking about here. That he's connecting our concern for the needs of others to our genuine faith in Jesus. Look at what Matthew 25 says in verse 34. If you've grown up in church, you know this. But here's what it says. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So in other words, just to set the scene, there's groups of people, some are on his right, some are on his left, there's sheep and there's goats. That's the analogy. Two groups of people and the ones on his right, they're blessed, they inherit the kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me food. Now in our evangelicalism, you would expect the line there to be, you prayed the sinner's prayer, come on in. It's not what he says. He said, if, you were, if I was hungry, you gave me food. 
And I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when, would, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He's saying the people that are welcomed into the family of God and on the last day stand in the judgment that Jesus is looking at them and he says, how do we know that you belong to me? You could not ignore the needs of the vulnerable. This is actually one of the clearest markers of Christians ever since the first century that the Christians both in Jerusalem and as they spread around the world were known for their inability to ignore the needs of the vulnerable. Belonging to Jesus and ignoring the needs of the vulnerable are incompatible. That's just another way to say that. You can't do it. And when the needs come in front of you and if your heart goes, not my issue, not my problem. That's a, fun, that's a thing we love to say in our culture, right? Hey, doesn't bother me, man. Don't, don't mess up my Zen. Don't, don't get in my bubble, man. I got things going on. Your need is not my problem. And James and Jesus says that's incompatible with belonging to Jesus. Another thing going on that this passage, this setup for the whole text is that James knows the messiness of the church. People love to read in Acts about the, the community in Acts. And they love to read about Acts 2, where they were all together and they're eating together and they're teaching together and they're worshiping together. And then there's this phrase in Acts 2 that says, and there was no needy among them. All the needs were being met. It's a beautiful community of sharing and loving and taking care of one another. And then it doesn't take you but three chapters, four chapters later to the first challenge to the church. And I don't know if you've really thought about this or looked at this, but the first major challenge to the church is that some people in the church are not, are Jewish Christians. They're all Jewish Christians at this point, but there's some Jewish Christians that didn't grow up in Palestine proper. They grew up in the, what we call the diaspora. They were spread out all over the known world. And then maybe they moved to Jerusalem. And so there were, there's Jewish Christians that grew up in Palestine. There's Jewish Christians who did not grow up in Palestine, but they've moved now to Jerusalem. And what was happening in the church is when someone's husband would die, the church would take care of the widows in the church. And then there's this thing that's happening and no one's saying anything at first. Look at it, Acts 6.1. By the way, James is the senior pastor of this church. It says in in James 6, 1, now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's Jews who grew up outside of Palestine, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. They're just not being taken care of. They're in the church. So you grew up in Palestine and your husband dies, the church goes, we got you. And then with a straight face, somebody who didn't grow up in Palestine, their husband would die and the church would say, do you need help? Uh, You're good, right? Right right next to the widow that they took care of. So much so that a complaint rose among them and said, wait a minute, aren't we a part of the body of Christ? 
And the leadership team actually had to restructure their whole leadership team to say, hey, we're gonna make sure that those who aren't on the inside, at least to us, also get taken care of. James knows how messy the church can be and how easy it is to not pay attention to the needs of people who aren't like us. Now, if you're like me, if you share my experience, if I know you, you're one of my friends, we share a lot of culture, we have a lot of background together and you're struggling, man, I'm quick to meet your needs. But when you're not like me, you don't share my culture, I don't quite understand the rhythms of your life. When you're struggling, I kind of assume that's somebody else's thing. One of, one of my mentors, a guy named Harold Nash is an African-American guy in, in Arkansas and a great pastor was telling me one time about how he came to know Jesus. And he said he came to know Jesus and he'd grown up in, part of, in Arkansas when it was super racist. And he'd experienced a lot of racism as a, as a guy who grew up in that. He was an older man by the time I met him. And he said that when he became a Christian, he knew he was called to love and reach people, but he didn't think he was called and loved to reach white people. And so he said for the first five years of his Christian life, he would, he'd walk right past He'd go share the gospel with a black guy and he'd walk right past a white guy. He'd see the needs of a poor black family and say, hey, let's, let's, let's meet those needs. And then, and then he'd bump into the, a poor white family and be like, it's somebody else's job. Because he had been so taught that you take care, just take care of your tribe. And that's supernatural to human beings. But the gospel actually comes in and obliterates that. And James knows the tendency of the church, was to, which is to overlook the needs of people that aren't like me. What James also knows is he's gonna get some pushback. This whole phrase, can that faith save him? He knows that that's kind of a, a skewer a little bit. That's a little bit of a poke at people who think they're good with God. And so he interjects at verse 18, um, a hypothetical objector. Look what it says in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. That's an interesting thing there. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You know, it's, you know here's the big pushback James is getting and he knows he's gonna hear it in the congregation. He's gonna go, wait, 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 James, James, hold up, hold up, hold up. I have good theology. Have you ever maybe have been a concern around someone and you're hanging out with someone and you can see that they're struggling and they seem kind of distant from God and they're not connecting in community and, and you've kind of been around them and you're like, hey, you know, like, where are you at? And they're like, oh, I, I know I'm good with Jesus. Well, how do you know you're good with Jesus? Well, let me just tell you. And they can rattle off all the theology. James points out that, that these, these folks that say, I have faith, but it's not producing works, they have good theology. And he points out the core theology for most Jewish Christians, which is the Shema. You see it in Deuteronomy chapter six, which is the Lord is one. Because Israel was called out of a, of a land where people had thousands of gods. And he said, you're a people who believe in the one true God. You believe God is one, you do well. You have great theology. You've got great head knowledge. You've, had, you've spent a lot of time in the text. You do well. Even the demons know the Bible back and front. They know it and they shudder. I love what Peter David says. He says, dead orthodoxy has absolutely no power to save. 
and may in fact even hinder a person from coming to living and saving faith. Great theology can actually be a shield somebody used to say, don't talk to me, I know stuff. Don't talk to me, I, I, got, I got it all down. I've said the right words, I believe the right thing. I'm aligned where, right where I need to be. And it's like, well, yeah, but, but where's, where's, what's coming out of you? James goes, man, you have great theology. You have this, you believe in the core theology, which is there is one true God, but even the demons believe that. And I love um, what Charles Minton says. He says, you know, it's a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it's unsatisfactory unless that good theology possesses us. It's a good thing to have good theology, but if that theology hasn't gripped my heart, if it hasn't owned me, I have it, I know it, but if it hasn't owned me, what good is it? Dead orthodoxy causes fear and it creates distance with God. In fact, if you have great theology that hasn't produced a relationship with Jesus, all you're gonna feel is shame and condemnation and distance. Fear, that's all you have. Now, is there fear in the believer? Absolutely, but the fear for a believer is to see a holy God, to see a beautiful God, and to see that that God has drawn me close. But theology can make me see God. He's big, he's powerful, he's amazing but I have no relationship. And I know that in the bottom of my heart. So that's gonna produce shame, fear, and distance. James hopes to see an active faith, a faith that where theology has actually possessed us and is producing something. And to show us that he's got two artifacts, two historical artifacts at the bottom of this passage that he hopes to bring this alive. Verse 20 says, do you want to be shown, O foolish man, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by, by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Look at verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The first artifact is Abraham, the father of the faith. Abraham, the father of the faith. And, and, and here's what James does. James goes and he says, man, if you read in the Old Testament, in Genesis 15, you'll see that God promised Abraham and Abraham believed God and God said, you're righteous because you believe. But it's tricky because if you know your Bible, the example here in the text is that when Abraham offered up Isaac on the altar, that God said to Abraham, Abraham, bring your son, give me your only son, the son I promised you. And Abraham took his son and he climbed up on a mountain and he stood there and he said, God, you want my son? And God said, yes, I want your son. And he said, okay, God, I'm gonna give you my son knowing that you own everything and this is your plan and your purpose. And then God rescued his son and God said, hey, I see now that you fear me and that you love me. And what James does is he toggles Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. 15 is the phrase he believed and God counted to him as righteousness in 22, he offered up Isaac. What's going on here? James is concerned with the visibility of Abraham's faith. That's what James is concerned with. If you read Genesis 15, Abraham had done nothing. 
And God said, you're righteous. You believed and you're righteous. Paul's right. Martin Luther is right. Abraham believed God. He put his faith in the promises of God. And God said, you're righteous. Did anybody know that besides God? Did anybody know what had happened inside of Abraham besides God? No. In fact, even Abraham himself maybe wasn't sure how deep his confidence in God went. He encountered God, he followed God to a new land. God said, hey, these are the stars. Your descendants are gonna be as broad and as wide as the stars. It's amazing. And Abraham believed God, but even Abraham didn't know how far that went. Until God said, Abraham, you're one son. You're 100 years old. I promised you a son. I gave you a son. I want your son back. And right then, Abraham had a conflict. Where is his confidence in God? Is it, can he give God his only son? And when he did, Abraham knew and everybody else knew Abraham has confidence in God. James is concerned with the visibility of Abraham's faith. And he's concerned with the visibility of our faith. You see that and you saw back in verse 18, he said, I'll show you my faith by my works. And you see here with Abraham that you see in verse 24 that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What, what's James trying to show us? You can see his faith by what's being produced out of him. You can see his faith. You know, this word justify is kind of the crux of the whole thing. Justifies what Paul says in Romans chapter four and in Romans chapter three, where he says that a person is justified by faith. And the term is usually meant to say this, that you were guilty and you were in a court and you were standing in court and you were guilty and the grace of God and the cross of Jesus was there. And God looked at the cross and he looked at the blood of Jesus and he looked at you and he took the blood of Jesus and he put it on you. And he said, through the blood of Jesus, you were guilty, but now you're not guilty. That's one use of the sense of justify. But as you know, and anybody who's a grammar teacher knows, and anyone who understands language at all knows that words have a range of meaning. And what James seems to be getting at here is not the took you from guilty and made you not guilty. It seems to be the idea of validated or seen to be true. And you go, well, what does that mean? Just one way of looking at this would be Matthew 11. Check this out real quick. We won't look at this long. Matthew 11. There's another opportunity where this word shows up. And you can see kind of this idea of shown to be true or, or validated. Jesus is talking himself and, and he says that the son of man, Jesus, he came eating and drinking and they said, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's a beautiful description of the ministry of Jesus. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Does that word justified mean that he moved Jesus from he was guilty to not guilty? No, it means that Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus proved out to be true. It, it, it was shown to be right. And that's the use of the word justify in this text, it seems to be that Abraham has a faith and his obedience to take Isaac and put Isaac on the altar took his faith and showed the world, this is a true faith. This is the kind of faith that holds nothing back from God. 
And the, the, the second artifact actually does the same thing. You flip to Rahab in verse 25. It says in the same way was also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. Same idea, wasn't her confidence in God. Rahab in Joshua chapter two and in Joshua chapter four. Rahab is a foreigner in Jericho. She's a prostitute. And these spies come in and say, hey, God's gonna take Jericho and give Jericho to the people of God, to Israel. And Rahab goes, I have heard about your God and I think that God is the one true God. So why don't you come in and Rahab protected the spies in her home and then sent them out another way so they could get back and take the information back to Israel. How do we know Abraham believed God was the one true God? There's only one way we knew, because she took care of the spies. Now, did she take care of the spies and therefore had faith that God said, oh, you took care of the spies, therefore, good job. Thank you for your good work. Now I love you, Rahab. No, she believed in the one true God. She had an opportunity to say, I believe in you. I'm gonna take care of your people. And her faith was shown to be true. This is what James seems to be getting at. And so we come really, the big idea of this whole thing, James's heart is that faith produces fruit. Faith produces fruit. I won't read it, but this is consistent with Jesus and with Paul. John 15, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you and a branch can't bear fruit of himself unless he abides in the vine, but abide in me and bear fruit. And when you bear fruit, you so prove to be my disciples. The fruit of abiding in Jesus that comes out of you is when the world looks in and says, oh, you're one of his. This is what James is concerned with. Paul, and I will read this, Ephesians 2, 4. Paul who said grace and faith, this is all a gift from God, but look at this in Ephesians 2, 4. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works. There's that tension again, so that no one may boast. But look at verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. You notice salvation is not a result of works, but we are God's work. See, that's, see there, there's a little play on words there. You weren't saved by works, but you are God's work. And what does the work of God do? They are created in Christ Jesus for what? good works for fruit. You could almost say it like this. Paul can't separate the gift of faith and what it activates and what you were created for. That God, when he rescued you and saved you and he brought your dead heart alive, your dead heart started doing things because it was created to do things. I love what Louis Giglio says. He says, dead, uh, dead people don't do anything. Don't you love that? That's brilliant. <laughs> people are alive, do different things than dead people. 
This is the stuff that James is talking about. He says, this is it. There's gotta be fruit coming out of you. There's gotta be life coming out of you. God rescued you for a creative purpose. You were made to do good works. And then the last thing, and I'm, I'm gonna finish here. I know I've been going a long time. This faith produces fruit and this faith produces friendship. The last thing I think James really wants you to see is that Abraham withheld nothing from God and he was called the friend of God. I think if you were gonna go, okay, well, check, how do I know? How do I know that my faith is genuine? Do you feel like you're friends with Jesus? I think, I think that's at the heartbeat of do you have this kind of faith? Is it propelling something out of you? Namely, is it propelling, I withhold nothing from God and he is my friend. And I wanna know him and I wanna be with him. Is that your story? Or is your story performance, a resume building to hold up to God? Or is your story, God has rescued me and I belong to him and I've been created to walk something out with him. Let's pray. Jesus, you're an amazing God and we lean into who you are and we love you with all of our heart. We pray God that you would move on our heart, God that maybe we need to evaluate ourselves. Maybe we need to look into our heart and we need to see what's in there. We need to see if there's maybe a false sense of security that we've said the right things, but there's no affection in our heart for you. And maybe we'd be like my old friend in college that, that we couldn't say we, we believe in you without saying we love you. And we can't say we love you if we don't say we love broken people. And maybe there's people in front of us right now and, and we're going, okay, God, do I love you enough to see them? What do you want? What are you calling? What have you created me to do that would be an outflow that would show a watching world that faith is true, it's right, it's good. God, whatever that is for each one of us, God, would you make it real for us? And would you show us what the next step is? In Jesus' name. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.